0: As we uh, take up this book of 1 Thessalonians, you can see something about how this particular local church was started if you were to read your Bibles back in Acts chapter 17. As Paul is on his missionary journeys there, it is in Acts chapter 17 at the beginning of that, that they come to Thessalonica. Now as they came to Thessalonica and as they shared the gospel there, there were a lot of problems that happened. There were there were riots and there were afflictions and those early church believers here. They faced a lot of initial attacks and initial persecution as a result of coming to the faith. Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia. It was a port city. It was a premier city for trade for um, life and education and religion. It was a thriving area. And it was a place where there was a lot of paganism and a lot of emperor worship. And so when you by grace come to understand there is no God, but God, there is no salvation except through Jesus Christ. And when you turn from all of those other things, that kind of message, that kind of gospel, as well as that kind of lifestyle and commitment and belief system would not be easily accepted. In this kind of community and so they met with early afflictions and as Paul writes to them here in 1st Thessalonians a little bit of time has passed he would be writing this it would be in his second missionary journey it would be probably during the 18 months where he's uh, ministering at the church at Corinth Uh, it would be somewhere around 49 to 51 uh, AD so this is, the, the church is about 15 to 16 years old, the New Testament church. It's the early days, and they're struggling with how to live and how to understand and what to do. And the church at Thessalonica in particular is struggling because things started with a lot of difficulty and a lot of persecution. And as time has gone on, it hasn't gotten easier. The persecution and the problems, it it continues And and the more they try to live faithfully, the more they try to do what is right. Things in their life and in their society are not getting easier. Actually, the more devout they show themselves, the more fervent and faithful in declaring their gospel, the more rejected and the more problems they face. And so he's writing to them in in the midst of this, uh, and this is Paul writing, it says Silvanus, but that is, uh, we, we know him by his shortened name, Silas, much better, and Timothy. Timothy, it seems, is one who has probably come back and shared a report, having gone back and visited this church, to tell him what the condition is and what's going on there at that local church. He begins with his basic greeting, and I don't want to go into it too much, but he starts with this. He says, grace to you and peace. That is the basis for all, all of our standing and all our hope. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because of the grace that is ours. And so when a letter begins with that idea, grace and peace, it speaks of what they, what they have what they continue to need, and what binds them all together. We live in that sphere of grace and peace. We continue to walk in. And it's important when you're writing to people whose present circumstances are anything but peaceable, and you say to them, grace and peace, they'll remember this. Wait a second. In this world, we may have tribulations, but be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. And the, the my concern isn't whether I have peace per se with my fellow men but because of the blood of Christ I have peace with God. I have acceptance with the one that peace truly matters with. All of this other peace is constantly in flux. But this is the peace that matters. But I want us to begin to, to see this it opens in the context of a prayer. We all we give thanks to God always. For all of you constantly now we're gonna see more of this later but you might get a picture from that simple phrasing there that Paul and Silas and Timothy and indeed all of us who are in Christ ought to be a people of prayer a people of perpetual prayer a people of perpetual prayer laced with praise and thanksgiving at all times i thank god for you constantly it means it, it, they're daily regularly repeatedly he is remembering them in prayer it's important for us to get that prayer is is, is not just a, a morning momentary event something we do uh, when we read our bibles or something we do just before we eat our meals Now, it's all right to do it then. It's all right to pray in the morning. It's all right to pray before your meals, because at least you've got those fixed occasions. But prayer should be something that's ongoing. I mean throughout the day as we're struggling with things God grant me greater grace I need patience from you understanding that everything that we face and everything that we live we live in Christ we're dependent on his ongoing sustaining his hand his care the struggles and circumstances we're entrusting all of those details and events to him I don't understand how we cannot be a people of prayer when Paul says pray without ceasing and says that he prays for them ceaselessly some people hang their heads and say how can I pray without ceasing I think how can you live in this world for a short time and not pray without ceasing because there's so much that constantly needs our prayers I think the problem is we think of prayer only in its formal forms it has to begin with dear Lord or something like that. And it has to end with, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. And it has to have these formal beginnings and endings. And it to, has to have these specific orders and petitions. It can have that. But prayer can also be just a simple singular praise to, prayer to God or praise to Him. God, how glorious that sunset is. <laughs> the work of your hand and your majesty. You are phenomenal, Lord. God, I need help right now. Grant me grace. Help me in this circumstance. God, that person looks like they're struggling right now. Come alongside of them and help them. But do we do this? This is the kind of stuff that Paul would do so that that when his mind at any moment goes to someone or something, where there's some stress or some tension or some uncertainty or anything, when his mind goes to something, it's as if his mouth also goes to something and it's prayer. We got to be like that because that's that's real life. We live not only before the face of God, which affects what we do, doesn't it? Knowing that we live before the face of God means we're going to be careful what we do because he sees it all. But better than that, we live having the ear of God. Well, not better than, I guess together with. Because before the face of God is the thing that kind of brings fear and caution, but the fact that we have his ear brings us strength and hope, because when he sees us stumbling, God forgive me, you know, strengthen me, help me to not do that again, and we have that constant conversation and interaction with God, and we see that that's that's just Paul's lifestyle, and so that's just by way of passing introduction, and the way that I'm going to unfold this this morning is not in the order that he does, it's just in the order for us to be able to Understand it and hopefully it will come together. Well, I'm gonna begin where really with verse 4 and then go back to verse 3 And then kind of summarize the whole thing The first thing that and even verse 4. I'm not gonna take in order either So but you are gonna see that everything I'm saying is right there in the passage, okay? I'm not making it up I'm changing the order and sometimes we it's healthy for us to change the order and here's the only reason I would say why We're from a different culture We're from a different era. We're from a different age. At times we have patterns of thinking and methods of thinking. They're a little bit different than the way they did in that ancient culture. And so if if I reorganize it and present it in a way that helps and makes sense to us, as long as I'm conveying the same thing, we should be good. And the first thing I want us to see coming out of verse 4 is that we, remember he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. He's writing to those that he prays for, for those who are in Christ. It says the work of faith, the labor of love. He's writing to at the beginning of verse 4, for we know brethren, or we know brothers. He is writing to believers here. And it's important to note that, and this is one of the things that always, always stirs my heart and mind. All the things that we would consider out of the, epo- the epistles, for the most part, are written to churches and written to believers. And if you don't know Christ if you don't really know Him in your heart and soul with with a personal real living relationship where where you love Him, you desire to know about Him, you want to live in a way that pleases Him, so much of what I'm going to say is just going to be tedious. You're just going to be, why isn't this guy done yet? Because it's just not going to feel relevant. You know, and that's one of the tragedies that the world often does or or that the church begins to often do think uh, This might not come across as relevant. So let me try to make it more relevant Well, this will always be relevant for the people that it's actually written to And that's to those who are in Christ Jesus It will stir us. It will move us. It will motivate us. It will educate us It is great and it is glorious And if you find, I don't get it, it's not working for me. Instead of just rejecting it, you might start asking yourself, why doesn't this mean something to me? Why doesn't this move me? God, do I know you? Is your spirit alive within me? Do I have this living hope and faith and salvation? Because this is not a game. The the truths of God, the reality and claims of the gospel, are a matter of life and death. More than when we use that phrase in this world. They are a matter of eternal life and eternal damnation. there's, There's no more significant truth and no more deeper importance that I can bring out of anything than this. And the first thing that we see to these beloved, to these brethren is this, that they are one unconditionally and personally chosen. It says in verse four, "Brothers, loved by God, He has chosen you." What, a, what an important thing for them to know. And this is is very important. It's one of those things we've seen so many people pass by, but Paul states this with a degree of confidence, knowing that this ought to, to them, be a source of encouragement. I have been chosen with all of the people in the world. See, here they were in Thessalonica, this tiny minority despised and hated seemingly forgotten and abandoned by so many people but they could take comfort in this reality though the world is against you God is for you He has chosen you personally And unconditionally. We say unconditionally because what was the difference between these believers in Thessalonica And all of those people who were persecuting them What's the difference? Well, they were born in the same city, raised in the same religion, practiced the same sin What made the difference between one and another was the grace of God poured out upon them And when they understood that I think, wow, I have this hope. I have this salvation. I, I, I know who is the true God. They aren't able to discern that, that the religion of the emperor is garbage. They aren't able to recognize that all of the gods, the pantheon of gods, are all false. And I do. And it's not a cause for boasting in intelligence, it's a humbling recognition of how is it that God would be pleased to reveal this to me? Because this guy's actually smarter than me, and he doesn't get it, you know? And this person is way dumber than me, and they get it too! So, how did this work? Well, we are those who are chosen by God, and the scriptures use that phrase all the time as encouragement. In Colossians 3.12 it says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, Humility meekness the idea that God has chosen you when there's all of these people in the world and he can choose Anyone that he would want to that he's chosen you is meant to not only be a strength and encouragement and a comfort But a motivation you know why you ought to live for him be humble and meek and compassionate and faithful Because God chose you you are his chosen people that is who you are, that's what characterizes you. Um, it speaks even not only of, uh, of, of that distinctiveness, but that preciousness. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And that's, that is, again, you now speaking of Christ there, but that same analogy pays, pays, applies to us, which is astounding. We were... Like all else. Inherited the futile, useless, worthless ways of our forefathers. What we had to offer God was nothing. And any attempts to offer Him what we thought was something was only filthy, stinking rags anyways. So then what's our hope? Our only hope would be His mercy. Our only cry would be, Have mercy on me, have grace, pour out your grace on me in the name of your son. And we are those that when we have come by grace through faith to follow him, we recognize this. Oh, I'm chosen. I'm precious. I'm I'm valued, I'm treasured. From When I realize what I deserve from a holy God, to be cast aside, to be kicked to the curb, to be condemned eternally, and yet he not only chose me, but he treasures me. I don't get it. How can his grace be so great? And it's because that's why uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 27 it says not many wise, not many noble. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. Just that constant reality of the fact of this. We are by grace, they were by grace, unequivocally and personally chosen by God. Oh, don't ever take that lightly. The second thing I want us to see connected to that, it said this, For we know, brothers, loved by God. Not only are we unconditionally and personally chosen, chosen, we are uniquely and powerfully cherished. That's the same idea that he would treasure us, that he would love us. You know, this this is one of those things that when we begin to understand what the scripture speaks about sin, the more you understand the way that the scriptures present the holiness of God and the sinful nature of man, then you start to be shocked that God would love us. You know, Uh, one of the ways that, that to understand it, the scripture says that when we're sinners, our natural condition is this. We are hostile to God. We are, in effect, by the way that we live, haters of God, we are at enmity with Him. We are His enemies. All that we are doing is offensive to Him. And it's important to see that because it's, it's this idea, and I, I've given this picture and sharing it with some. When we want to understand the richness of the love... And salvation that God has given us, it, it's not that the idea of going into the hospital, into the, into the children's ward and, and seeing all these uh, sweet little babies sleeping and saying, well, you know, I think I'm going to love that one only. It, it's not like that. That's, it's, that's, that's a, a wrong picture of it. It would be more like this. You've already got a son. And your son has gone out in the front yard. And you have now looked out in the front yard and there are a multitude of people gathered around and they are beating your son to death. And you go out there and you take some of those who are beating your son to death and you say, hey, I want to adopt you. I want to embrace you. I want you to be my son as well. Right there in the midst of their hatred, in the midst of that brutality, that he would come and instead of just wiping them all out, which I have to be honest, if someone was doing that to my boy, yeah, I I would probably not think of embracing a single one of those guys, you know, unless it was, you know, a bear hug that just ends them. (laughs) I I wouldn't think anything, but... This is this is the idea of of the mercy of God. He doesn't we don't meet him halfway He meets us in the midst of our sin and Sinfulness, and he calls us out of that by grace turns us from it You don't get yourself fit or ready for salvation or forgiveness. Forgiveness is all of God, all of grace, all because of Christ, and it can happen right there while you're sinning. You can be in the the immediate practice of something you know is dishonoring to God, and God can grab you right there and shake you and break you and make you new. You say, wow, that is love. Because it, it, it's not this idea where I was running to him and he was running to me. and we, No, 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 you were running away. And he chased you down and said, you don't have any idea where you're running. Opened your eyes to see where that was taking you. Turned you around and said, this is where I'm taking you. And you said, I'm coming. I'm coming with you. Thank you for chasing me down he seeks and saves the lost the reality of a Savior who pursues and lays hold of and turns us and brings us but that is the idea we've made too lightly of love. You know, we, we follow on the age, most of us here not, but you know, some people lived through the 60s and the 70s and the hippie generation and free love and all this kind of nonsense. And then we live in uh, the United Nations age where equal rights for everybody, humanitarian efforts and all these kinds of things. And we don't understand this. Most people don't love their enemy. Generals don't gather together the soldiers and say, all right, as we're preparing our offensive first thing you got to bear in mind love them no lock and load brother get out there and do what is necessary it, 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 that's the idea that is presented and, and so we, we we've turned love into this fluffy thing and we've got to recover a deeper sense of what it means To be those and and be in awe of the fact that God loves me. Um, 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 says this, behold, the King James, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. And so we are. Or the ESV, see what kind of love God has given to us. There is a unique, a special, a peculiar, and extraordinary kind of love that God has given to us. That's not given to all. What's this love look like? What's this love do? See what kind of love? That we should be called the children of God, the sons of God, and so we are. There is a love that is poured out that makes someone a child of God. It takes someone, using still the language of 1 John, who by by nature and by his own constitution would be a child of the devil. The language of the book of Ephesians, by nature a child of wrath. And he takes them out of their sin, he takes them out from under the power of the enemy and their enmity, and he brings them to himself in adoption and in love. I love you. Everyone memorizes 1 John 4, well maybe not everyone, 1 John 4.19, but you should. 1 John 4.19, which says what? We love because he first loved us. Now the, the wonderful thing about that is, is there is a cause and an effect. We love him and we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. Those who are the blessed recipients of that special love of God that brings them life and salvation and adoption and inclusion, that that reveals his eternal purposes and election. Those who are those people, what we love because he first loved us. The direct result of his love towards us is that we what? Love Him and others. That's why the scripture says He poured His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Where I was dead in my trespasses and sin, callous in my heart when He made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. When I was dead and He made me alive in Christ Jesus. he. Remove that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh when God did this entirely remarkable work of regeneration or new birth in my life. He poured His love into my heart and filled it up. And when His love was manifest toward and then into me, what did I do? I loved Him. I loved Him more than anything else in the world. Well, how's that? What? What? What's the greatest commandment? You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who does this? Well, by nature, no one. But when he pours his love into our hearts, oh, we do. Do we do it perfectly? Nah, I wish we did. And we want to more and more, but we don't as of yet. And so the we've... It's important to understand that distinctive and special love that God set upon us. It's kind of like the love that is spoken of, of God's unique old covenant love to the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, it tells, God tells them, Look, God didn't love you or choose you because you were more numerous or more righteous than the rest of the people. Because actually, you are a stiff-necked, stubborn people. Yeah, and he goes on in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Verse 15 to say this, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. None of us are deserving of his choosing. None of us are the right deserving recipients of his love. And so when we get to sit back and think, God, the God, loves me. (laughs) How can it be? There's so many people in the world. There's so many people more talented, more gifted, could do far more. Why would he love me? And it's all right to say why. And if you search yourself to find valid reasons that make you love worthy, uh, well, you're wrong. All right, Pride needs to be eliminated. But then there are some people who are on the other side. Instead of seeing pride in themselves and reasons why they deserve it, which we've got to cast off that idea. There's other people who look to themselves and say, no, he can't love me because I don't deserve it. There's no way he could love me because I know what I am. See, that's the beauty of the love of God. It does not depend on who you are. On what you are it's not on the same basis that men put it on remember God looks on the outward uh, men look on the outward appearance But God looks on the heart, but God not only looks on the heart if the heart he sees in you is no good You know what he can do? He can give you a new heart You know if, if there are things in you that are not right that you know God I know that you don't love these things in me. You know who can change those things? God and so we get to walk and grow in the richness of this blessed love. And so often we, we see these, these phrases in the scriptures. Let me give you one of them. Jude begins this way in the first two verses of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Oh, what a blessed place to be. You are called... From out of the world, you are called to be one of His people. You are those who are beloved by God. That God has established a specific and an extraordinary loving commitment to and connection with you. And you will be kept for Jesus Christ. Oh, how powerful indeed is that. Now let's, let's consider a third thought. We also, this passage tells us, not only are we unconditionally and personally chosen, not only are we uniquely and powerfully changed, we are also unequivocally uh, or uniquely and powerfully cherished. We are also unequivocally and permanently changed. So if I was to simplify it, we are chosen, we are cherished, we are changed. Yeah, and and, and that and that's the that that's so different than the world presents it, isn't it? It isn't if you change Even the misunderstandings of the idea of God's election almost always present it If you do this if you believe if you if you do these things, then he will choose you that's wrong Because he has chosen you He cherishes you in a particular way, and in the course of time, according to His grace, He will change you. Now, you might ask this question, how could Paul write to these people? Did he get an unpublished copy of the Lamb's Book of Life? Because he wrote to them and says, you are chosen by God. I mean, how can he have the list of the elect? To be able to say that with certainty. Well, he doesn't need to have that list. Why? Because those who are chosen by God are demonstrably, manifestly, clearly changed. And that change is something that can be seen and known. The, Jesus puts it this way often in the Gospels, by their fruit, you will know them. Now, he also presents it this way in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, so if someone has no fruit, then what is that indicative of? What does that show us? They don't have Christ. They don't have the Spirit. Again, I often like to remind us when we go to Galatians, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's not called the fruit of the believer. Though it effectively is as well, but where the Spirit is, there will be fruit. Where Christ is, there will be fruit. Those who, John 15, abide in Christ, bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So we don't earn it by what we do. But when we are united to Christ by faith, we are a changed people. You know. So the idea, uh, some who want to cast disparagement or some who want to speak meanly against those who recognize the glorious doctrine of God's choosing and God's electing purposes and that mighty giving of love and that tremendous transformation of grace that takes place in the hearts of God's people will often like to look at certain groups of churches and say, yeah, they are the frozen chosen. You know, and I think they say that because it rhymes. But that can't work. The scriptures indicate this. When you are chosen, you are changed. That's it. There is no way that you can remain uh, lifeless. And we, we see that really most powerfully in Back in verse 3, how are the how are the most distinctive and clear changes shown forth for us? And we see them in in those simple phrases, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Now what I want to remind you here is this, when when we're looking at 1 Thessalonians and, and this first part of the thing, this is not a command or an instruction. Okay, so it's, this is not Paul coming to them and, and, and pointing his finger and saying, All right, you need to get after it and do more works so of love. He's going to tell them to do more and work. But this isn't commands. This is something that is part of his praise to, thanks toward, and remembrance of God. I'm thanking God on your behalf for your work of faith and your labor of love. Hold on a second, Paul. Why are you thanking God For what I'm doing. You know. If I'm the one laboring in love. And I'm the one working in faith. And I'm the one who's persevering and steadfast in hope. Shouldn't you be saying I thank you Thessalonians. For what you are doing. Why is he thanking God. Why is he addressing God. Now. That's a leading question. To which your mind should be saying. Maybe it's because. God is the one, when He is at work within us, that by His grace produces the works of faith. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. He's thanking God because men cannot muster this. This is the work that God does. Now, it's important, I want us to to see this. There's some little bit of complexities in this uh just just in terms of the language it, it, it but it's very clear i know most of you don't care about greek but uh, chris is here and you know. what you have here is the, is the noun in the genitive form which, which which shows the possession and connection and in this in this context so so really it would be the work the love all right or or the work the faith the labor the love but The work and the labor are in the genitive so those are possessions of or Characteristics of or flow out of The other in other words, it's simply saying this it's the if you have faith Do you know what that faith does? It works True saving faith works Right? We're not saved by works, we're saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves us, sure in the end, is a faith that works in this life. Which is exactly what James says, he says you show me your faith or you show me your love, how do you do it? Faith without works is dead. The idea that someone could take faith, and this is what the New Testament was blasting aside, the way that the idea that someone could could take faith and push it all the way up into the head and leave it there as something that is is only Yeah, I believe that, but they don't act on it, you know? It would be like this. I believe in order to go on living, I need to breathe. I believe it, but I'm just not going to do it. How long would that work for me? Yeah, under 10 minutes for sure, right? Because it, 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 it's, just, it's just that kind of ridiculous notion of saying, I believe, because what we believe are, are not just sort of ethereal ideas. I mean, they, they are the core fabric of reality. They are life, very life. And so it, it, it carries more than that sense. And so the, the, the idea is this. What you have is faith, love, and hope. Right? Or if you're thinking 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. See, the, these are those characteristics that we have. But when you have real faith, what does it do? It acts, it works. When you have real love, what does it do? It labors. It, it, James also says it a little bit before that passage in, in, uh, in James 2, uh, up somewhere closer to verse 11, I believe. He says this, look, you can't say to somebody, hey, be warm and be filled. There you go. I mean, if somebody is cold and hungry, And you got food and a blanket, but all you do to do is be warm and be filled. There you go. Is that love? No, actually, in that kind of situation, that sentiment is only real if what? Be warm as I'm handing them a blanket, be filled as I'm giving them food. Anything else is ridiculous instead of stepping in front of the table so they don't see my blanket and food. Yeah, be warm and be filled. But this is mine. I don't need it now because I have plenty, but maybe later, who knows? No, that's not the idea. And so that's the picture that the scriptures are trying to uh, undo. And the steadfastness of hope. Because hope is that, sh- that faith that rests in the sure future promises of God, we what? Hold on. So what they're thinking is this. It's been tough. Since you came here and gave the gospel and since you left, it's been tough. You know, they're they're wanting to know to some extent, when is Jesus coming again? When is he coming again? You know, I have to say, I ask that question pretty frequently too. Um, And until he comes, they're being reminded, until he comes, what do you do? You live in the realm of sure faith, hope, and so you hold fast. If you really have hope, what does it do? It holds fast. It, all of these things, it takes it, and, and this is very important. It doesn't allow the idea of us to push it up into the head like some groups do, and we, we, we think of them as heavily doctrinal and, he, and, and very, maybe strong on creeds and things, but, but you, you look for real life. You look for real love in the community, and it's just like, ugh, ugh. Or there's another group. They try to push all the truths of God right here, right, into the heart. Nothing up here. <laughs> and so, so, you know, yeah, I don't know what that means, but I love it. Right, if you don't know what it means, then you, I don't, how do you love it? I, don't, I just do. No, 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 that, that idea isn't there. The, the truth of God, it pervades the totality of our soul. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a simple way of saying everything you got, everything you are. And, and you can see this. As a result of this gospel, how does he know that they were the chosen? When our gospel, verse, still verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, it didn't just, you didn't just hear it. Oh yeah, I hear what you're saying, I'm good with it. No, no, no. What happened? It came to you in word and in the power of the Spirit with full conviction. This is everything. I mean, this is everything where the Spirit of God brought understanding, but an understanding that absolutely captivated your heart, that actually compels you and impels you to go a different direction. That's why it says this down towards the end there in verse 9. Others speak of the reception that we had among you. You can see the power of the Spirit of God. You can see what He does to those who are His chosen and cherished. It says this... How you turned to God. The Spirit of God came to you in power. And as a result of that life-giving power and faith, what did you do? You turned to God. So, so do we do something? Yes. We love because He first loved us. We change our doings and our deeds. Why? Because He's changed us. Because He's turned our hearts and minds to Him by the gospel, we turn to Him. Even if that sounds mysterious, that's biblical language. You know, uh, and so what does it say? And not only you turn to God, but what? From idols, so away from something, to something, and to what? To serve. A living and true God. Wait a second. How come it didn't say you turned from to believe? I mean why, why couldn't he have just stopped with believe? If it had said believe would that have been wrong? No, that wouldn't have been wrong because if you really have a New Testament biblical concept of believe you understand the ideas of believe obey serve love they are absolutely linked together, you can't break them. They're completely tied together. So when you've turned, it's it's not and it's not a serve that is uh, a drudgery. You turned from it to serve. The living and true God, you know who He is, you believe who He is, your whole heart and mind are given to Him. And so, because your heart and mind have been, it has been made known to you who He is, what do you now do? You now give to Him all that you are. So, what percentage is this talking about here? I mean real Christianity, is that like 50-50? I'm 50% mine, 50% His? how much do I get to hold on to? Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to hold on to anything except Him. He's what you want to cling to. He's the one you want to hold fast to. Why? Because all of your hope is in Him. And everything else is passing away. And so when when we look at this passage, it's just... So remarkable. Just draw your mind back to the simple things that we've considered. One, this passage teaches us that we are unconditionally and personally chosen. Two, it says that we are. That's we. I say we collectively and I, I can't. Unlike Paul, I don't know you. We who are in Christ, we who are of living and active faith are personally chosen. We who are uh, living for him are uniquely and powerfully cherished, powerfully loved because what? It's not a love that just said, well, whenever you get around to it and if you want, come on here. No, it's, it's a love that, that came and took us and laid hold of us and brought us to his side. And we are unequivocally and permanently changed. And this change is total. Faith, hope, and love. And and that is what wells up in our heart. And then the words that are attached to that are words of activity and energy. uh, Work, labor, faith, uh, love. The, The way that it's expressed are things that even the words used are at times... Activity and involvement to the point of even exhaustion and weariness. Wow. So when Paul said regarding his ministry, he knew what it was like to spend and be spent. What did he mean? Yeah. It's all in. It's all for him. Why? Because he's all that matters. Nothing else really bears any eternal significance, and so this is my hope for us. If if we look at our lives, and this is the, the richness of it, and we see that we are not changed, then what do we need? God, have mercy on me. God, pour your love into my heart and make me new. God, bring me to yourself because... You know, I can't through a, a list of decisions or or through a, 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 a reciting a prayer make these real changes in my life. I can't do them. I need your powerful grace to do this work. But for those of us who are changed and have known that tremendous change, we get to sit back and say, oh, that God has chosen me, oh, that God cherishes and loves me. And it's not just to sit back because. Later on, if we, as we go through this book, he'll say, you know, your love, you know, you're doing that labor of love, well, do so more and more. More. Yeah, see, even that response means you don't get it. It's more, yes, more. You know, it, it, it's like someone who, for example, I know someone who occasionally practices and tries to run half marathons or marathons. All right? And the goal isn't next time I run it I want to be at least 2 minutes slower. Right? The person who's lifting weights doesn't think 6 mo- months from now I want to I want my max to come down. Do they? No, what's the goal of the weightlifter? Yeah, I want it to go up. What's the goal of the runner? I want my time faster. And it, generally, nobody is, is sitting over them, threatening them and beating them, or sending the dogs chasing them. Right? It is, I want to do this. And so they train, and they effort, and they do it. It's that sense. When we know who he is, and he, yeah, encourage me, remind me, Uh, exhort me, but you know what? I want to do this. I'm all about getting better. Because, uh, on these other things, and I'm gonna... uh, The person who in this life will max out at a certain bench weight, bench pressing weight, like it or not, you live long enough, that max is coming down. The same thing with running. You like it or not, at some point the time is going to start dropping. It's just inevitable. With the flesh. But not with our faith. More and more. Into gray hairs. Into no hairs. Into old age. We can abound more and more and more. And why? Because it's all the grace of God. Let's pray.